Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Decoding Westworld, an unofficial podcast about the HBO original series Westworld. I'm David Chen. I'm Jonah Robinson. And welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen. What we do here on this podcast, we will recap uh, this week's episode of Westworld. We'll spoil everything through the episode. We won't spoil anything from future week's episodes. That includes anything on the next time on preview that HBO shows. You can find uh, more episodes of the podcast at decodingwestworld.com. You can also email us at decodingwestworld at gmail.com. Jonah Robinson and I are here super early on Monday morning. <laughs> it's like 7 a.m. Pacific time, Monday morning, to bring you this episode uh, because that's how much we love you guys. Uh, happy, is, ha- happy Halloween, guys. Yeah, seriously. It is Halloween. It's 7 a.m. Most people are sleeping. We're recording about Westworld. Uh, but uh, we're happy to do it because last night's episode dropped some pretty awesome new information. Uh, but before we get to that, we got to follow up on a bunch of things. Firstly, I just want to say one thing of appreciation for my co-host Joanna here, which is that uh, Joanna has actually received the next two episodes of the show, like many critics have already done, and uh, has chosen not to watch them. So at this point, uh, Joanna's knowledge of the show is concurrent with uh, everyone else's knowledge, like who's watching normally on HBO, right? So Joanna, how difficult was it to resist the... uh, the urge to watch the future episodes. Well, we actually have to thank friend of the show, Matt Patches, because he's the one who floated this idea past me. He's like, I don't want to watch in advance because I want to keep having fun theorizing. And it's no fun theorizing if you actually know what's going to happen. And I was like, that's true. I love theorizing. So, uh, yeah, I just wanted to be able to talk about the show freely without dancing around anything. So that's right. So that's a very meta piece of commentary. On this podcast, but uh, just know that I am very grateful for that, Jenna, because uh, it, it's some. I, I'm probably I like I would probably do it, you know, if I were you. Like I'd probably do it, you know, for the sake of the show, quote unquote. But uh, it would be difficult, and I'd probably be pretty bitter and resentful about it. So, uh, so I'm very grateful for you making that sacrifice for us. No, I know I was talking about this. Um, you know, we have a lot to get to, so I won't dwell too long in this. But I was talking about this at a party on Saturday. Someone asked me, "Do I like Westworld?" And I admitted that when I watched the first four episodes by myself, I was sort of okay on it. But ever since we started this podcast, we have. This is going to sound like me kissing the ass of our listeners, but we have this discussion and everyone's emailing us and tweeting us and writing it and all this stuff. It's more interesting to me to be part of a discussion. It's kind of lonely to watch all these episodes by yourself and then have this knowledge that you can't share with people. So I actually don't think it's that selfless. I think it's selfishly. I want to experience it along with you guys and be part of the conversation. Awesome. Well, welcome, Jonah. The water is warm. Um, (laughs) All right, so we got to follow up on just a few things. And, of course, there's a bunch of follow-up that we're going to save until the very end of this episode uh, when we talk about theories. Like, what we're going to do is we're going to recap the show and then talk about crazy-ass theories, including one that Joanna Robinson floated last night at VanityFair.com. Uh, and uh, I should also say that 
Uh, a few people have messaged us saying that the format of the show that we are electing to use. Uh, when we when I started the show, I thought, "Hey, Joanna, let's let's experiment with different formats <laughs> for the show." You know, because right. we've done other TV recap podcasts. Let's try a different format where we don't recap the show. We don't go scene by scene or, or plot line by plot line. Uh, some people have actually messaged us saying, "Hey, they like the like classic, you know, recap each storyline format." And so uh, that's what we're going to do uh, in this episode and then follow it up by uh, getting some theories out there. But there is some for, uh, follow-up that we want to get to right now. Uh, one is that uh, Michael wrote into decodingwestworld at gmail.com. And if you could let us know where you're writing from, that would be great. Michael wrote in, personally, I couldn't care less about where Westworld is located, but I have not seen this talked about. Uh, when Elsie is talking about the markings of Orion with Stubbs, she looks straight up into the sky, which means they are on Earth. And uh, they can't be underground either. She would know uh, she can trust what is in the sky as far as the stars. Boom. Thanks. Uh, so Mike <laughs> points out that, uh, yeah, that they are likely on Earth because when she's talking about Orion, she looks up in the sky, which is a constellation visible from Earth. And if you were on Mars, it probably wouldn't look quite the same. Uh, furthermore, uh, in last week's episode, there is a scene or a shot, I should say, where Dolores is looking straight into uh, the uh, moon. And, you know, maybe it's like there's a, you even see a close-up of the moon that then transitions into like a light in the underground bunker or whatever. Uh, and it's it could be possible that they're in some kind of Truman Show-esque dome, but uh, also could just be the moon. So it, feel, it feels pretty likely that they're on Earth. But as we said, uh, not a super interesting question. Like if it reveals that they're on Mars, it's not going to really change your understanding of things. But since it is something that people seem to be debating, just wanted to throw it out there. Uh, all right. What else in the uh, follow-up thing? Oh, the financials of Westworld. So there's a question of wh- whether a, a park like Westworld could actually survive given its economics. Uh, and some people have done the math. Uh, so let's see. David from the United Kingdom writes in, uh, I wanted to pick up on something Joanna mentioned in your episode 4 podcast about how an accountant friend of hers was doubting the financial viability of Westworld. Firstly, I agree with Joanna that it seems probable that they have outside investment, but I was working out the actual revenue of the park. Sad, I know. And even though we have no (laughs) idea what inflation needs to be when applied, I still think that the revenue of the park is sufficient. In episode 1, when they were talking about recalling the hosts uh, because of the defect in the update, Either Cullen or Sizemore states that there are 1,400 visitors in the park at that moment. If we accept that this is the average that the park has at any one time and that the average stay costs $40,000 per day, which is a piece of information revealed, I think, in episode three or four, uh, then just from the visits, the park has a revenue of over $20 billion per year. To put that into context, all of Disney World's around the globe have an annual revenue of approximately $4 billion. Uh, It's impossible to say, but it looks like the park would generate enough revenue to operate. That email comes in from Dev, uh, David from the UK. Uh, Jenna Robinson, what uh, did your, your accountant friend have a response to that? So I forwarded this to my accountant friend, and he says, I remain unconvinced the numbers don't stand up to scrutiny. I mean, does this mean some poor saps are paying 40000 per person per 
per day for a family of four just to go whitewater rafting and horseback riding and eat barbecue served by a robot waitress at the saloon. And so then their million dollars for a six-day family vacation is going to subsidize all the investment bankers who shoot holes in and blow the faces off dozens of more advanced and realistic AI robots, some of the most advanced and realistic AI robots ever made, who, despite being shot whenever and however, apparently never have their personality and memory circuits damaged. And someone and somehow the books balance in the end. Disney has a fireworks show every night, but they don't have to rebuild the animation pirates uh, and presidents just because some guests were encouraged to shoot and rape them. So uh, I guess his counter argument is if the financials do work out, the gentle visitors to Westworld are really getting a ripoff because yeah. they are underwriting the the rapists and the shooters. So yeah, I mean, it's like people who go to Disney World and don't do anything except maybe like eat at the restaurants and look at things, you know. I guess, yeah. But I think I think your friend point you know has a good point in that the cost structure is probably pretty intense. I mean, you have all these R and D folks, you have narrative people, you know, you have people who are doing repairs, and then actual like physical uh, parts and labor that need to be you know used to get the park back into working order again so uh yeah it makes a lot more money than disney world but it probably costs a lot more than disney world to maintain as well and Uh, we can we can talk about this when we get into the recap but they did address the financials of westworld in this episode yeah but the the question is the financials of when in in westworld's Uh, history (laughs) so (laughs) so usually we save the theories until the end uh, and and we, we still will this time, but this episode more than any other is one that really does make you feel like you, you need to kind of have some understanding of when this takes place in order for even the show to be narratively satisfying at this point, I think. Because if the show is in fact taking place in two different timelines, uh, then it calls into question that some of the plot developments and character developments we're seeing are not actually happening like in present day. And then... Uh, you know that makes it less satisfying if if you find out that's the case. But we will we'll delve into that. Uh, why don't we just dive into the episode? You can always uh, email us, I should say, at decodingwestworld at gmail dot com. I do want to give one shout out before we get into the actual recap itself, which is that uh, we we learned this week that some very talented uh, culinary artists <laughs> listen listen to the show, Joanna. Uh, you could even call them top chefs Uh-oh. listen to the show. Uh, and uh, we just want to say I'm a big fan of uh, that show, Top Chefs, and right. and leave it at that. Okay. So let's move on. Let's begin with talking about what happened with Ford this week. The episode begins with uh, Ford having a conversation with old Bill, which is one of the older robots. Uh, and Ford tells the story of how a greyhound uh, his father bought for him and his brother uh, was used to actually accidentally kill a real-life cat, uh, and it's a kind of haunting story that uh, Anthony Hopkins, as the character Ford, tells uh, about like what happens you know, afterwards, like what happens when the dog finally catches the car, or the cat in this case. Um, and he, like, the, the greyhound didn't know what to do with himself, and uh, that dog had spent its whole life trying to catch that thing, and it now had no idea what to do. Uh, and then Really great moment. You find you like see how old the old cowboy character is, old Bill character is, like as as a robotic piece of technology. He doesn't seem to react in in nearly as human like way as any of the other robots. Yeah. Uh, and 
and then the scene kind of ends. Now, what do you think this scene is trying to tell us, Joanna? I think it's a pretty, um, you know, straightforward parallel to, like, Dolores being a robot on a loop, like a greyhound on a track. And uh, what happens when the thing that's bred to just do one simple loop goes off its goes off its loop? It probably will kill your cat, I guess, is the moral of the story there, right? Mm. Uh, I, I just had a random other uh, take home from it, which is like, could it be referring to the man in black who's per, like per, doggedly pursuing this uh, maze at all costs? And then when he finds it, he's going to find that it's not what true. he's looking yeah. for. Uh, I think that's also true. Yeah. Yeah. So it could be either of those. But basically what the show is trying to tell you and the scene is trying to tell you is uh, don't pursue your dreams because it will end up leading to failure or disappointment, I think, is ultimately uh, the goal of uh what the message is here so uh and we see ford and the man in black confront each other later we'll get to that but uh, uh later on in the episode seemingly out of nowhere ford and dolores also have a conversation right and ford says a bunch of vague things he says you're in my dream um and when Dolores tries to tell him that dreams are meaningless, he says, no, dreams are actually, you know, they tell us who we are and who we may become. Uh, and then he reveals information about uh, what was going on with Arnold. Like he asks her when she last spoke with Arnold. She says it was 34 years ago. So we know that stuff that happened with Arnold happened 34 years before modern day Ford. Right. right? Um and uh, what did Arnold ask Dolores to do? Quote, he told me I was going to help him destroy this place. End quote. Um, and Ford muses on like what it means to be a hero or a villain. Uh, and then when Ford leaves, Dolores keeps talking as if to Arnold, as if she is still under Arnold's control. Uh, so a lot of stuff going on here. Like we don't know exactly what Dolores is – uh, what side Dolores is playing. I think one thing that's very clear is that between Dolores and Maeve, these robots are now operating uh, of their own volition in some ways. They are disregarding the programming that's been given them or they are obeying like higher order programming from potentially Arnold. Um, any other thoughts on this scene, Joanna? Um, I thought it was a great scene. Um, and I, I think it's really interesting. I think you see a lot of uh, poignancy with Ford. I mean, I think after last week and some of the events of this week or watching him cut up a robot's face, it's easy to think of Ford as like this sort of a heartless guy with a God complex, but to see him have uh, like such nostalgia, it feels like for his co-creator um, and also to reveal the vulnerability, like his own daddy issues, like daddy issues are basically why he built Westworld, right? Like my dad said, he, I basically had to stay on my loop, is what my dad said. I have to stay in my place. But I built a world where I'm God, so shows him. Uh, so, yeah, I, I just thought all that was kind of revelatory of Ford's personality and uh, motivation. It was nice. Uh, we will get to the timing of this scene later on. Uh, because, it, it, I mean, we see a lot of these diagnostic scenes placed strategically throughout these episodes. Uh, last week, there, the episode opened with a diagnostic scene between Bernard and Dolores. This week, Dolores collapses at a Day of the Dead parade only to be seemingly woken up by Ford. But I don't think these scenes are all taking place in the, in the order in which we see them. Would yeah. you agree with that? 
Yes. Yeah. So uh, we then cut to Dolores. Uh, she appears to be in a graveyard, and she hears a voice that says, find me. Uh, and then she says, like, show me how. And then that's when we, we realize, actually, this is still within the context of the William and Logan storyline. Uh, and her and William and Logan with Slim ride into the town of Pariah to meet El Laza, which I think someone pointed out uh, last week means the loop, right? Sure does. In Spanish. Um, so we had we had never really met Alazo until this point. Like no one had no one knew who Alazo was. Uh, and when they enter the town of Pariah, Logan gives an exposition dump that's set to uh, B-roll of all the crazy stuff going on <laughs> in Pariah. Yeah. Uh, let's see if I can read to you from the exposition dump here because I think it's pretty uh, important. Uh, let's see. Here we go. So. Uh, some of the park feels like it was designed by committee or market tested, but everything out here is more raw, but it doesn't come cheap. Rumor is they are hemorrhaging cash. We're considering buying them out. Supposedly, this place was all started by a partnership, and then right before the park opened, one of the partners killed himself, sent the park into a freefall. I mean, I don't know any of the details. I don't even know his name. Uh, And then William says, you must have a team of lawyers looking at this place. Uh, Logan says, yeah, well, they came up empty. He's a complete mystery, not even a picture. Not even a picture, Joanna. Not so, even a picture, but we've yeah. seen a picture. What? <laughs> uh, yeah. So, yeah. yeah, what do you think about what's going on here? I mean, yeah, go, go ahead. Well, to me, and we'll talk about this more later, but to me, if we are looking at this as two different timelines, let's say we've got a 34-year range uh, from when Arnold died to when Dolores is getting interviewed by Ford. I would put – my estimation, though there are no concrete lines of dialogue in the scene to put it there, I would put this at like let's say 30 years ago. Like it's it feels like this conversation or maybe even like 33 years ago. It seems like this conversation is very recently after Arnold's death. That's what it sounded like to my ears. Now, granted, I'm like looking for things – confirmation bias, looking for things that confirm this theory. But it sounds to me like Logan's talking about – Arnold passed away somewhat recently. The company is in financial disarray. His company is considering buying it. Maybe that company is Delos and maybe 30 years down the road, Logan, if he's still alive, or William, if he's still alive, is like the major shareholder owner of Westworld. And if and if Logan or William, probably William, is Ed Harris, and that would explain why Ed Harris is free reign in the park if he's essentially the owner of the park, right? Right, so. right. I will say my rebuttal to that is is not to contradict you, but just to say I don't think anything that Logan says disqualifies the theory that uh, this is taking place due to different different timelines. Like he could easily be referring to an event that happened three years ago. He could also be referring to an event that happened you know, 30 years ago. Uh, it's probably more likely that it's like three or four years ago, but I, I don't see any. Like, I just read the dialogue to you. I don't think there's anything there that yeah, indicates agree. that like it's happened decades ago or that it happened a few years ago. Like, it just it could it could be either way. It doesn't you know eliminate either of the theories. Now, if he had said thirty years ago, then we probably would think that would would that have removed the doubt from your mind that this is yeah. yeah. 
I but think he, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he didn't say 30 years ago. He, he did just, not. He didn't actually say – he said right before the park opened, one of the par- partners killed himself. So Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't know any of the details. I don't even know his name. It's funny how he says, like, I don't even know his name. Like, it felt a little bit stilted to me. Like – well, oh, definitely. We, like, we know his name. It's Arnold. And he's like, I don't even have a picture. Well, we've seen the picture in present day with Ford. Like, why, why would right. he say those things unless, you know, there's something that they were trying to tip their hand, like, somehow with that right. line of dialogue. Uh, so then later on, Dolores has uh, visions uh, of herself. Like, she sees other versions of herself throughout this episode. Yeah. Uh, there's a moment when she sees herself, like, in a parade, walking along, uh, and then later she sees a fortune teller, uh, teller version of herself. Any idea what these visions of herself are, Joanna? Because so- some have speculated maybe there's other versions of hosts, like, you know, different hosts walking around the park. Which I don't think is true. That doesn't make any sense to me um, because, like, it would, seems like it would generate a lot of confusion. It seems to me like this is just all part of Dolores's, uh consciousness developing and maybe witnessing other – like, this goes back to the episode two or three when they're talking about, like, what are the voices? Like, you, you hopefully perceive the voices as from you, you know, uh, and it's part of, like, her journey to consciousness. What do you think? Um, I – Yeah, I think it's uh, either part of Dolores sort of like melting down a little bit or uh, if you want to go again to, I apologize, the the 30-year timeline theory, it could be her remembering being there before. Obviously not as a fortune teller thing because that's like – that's her seeing herself as a different character. But in the parade scene, it was almost like how many times has she been in that parade? Sometimes at the parade is she in the parade. Sometimes at the parade is she watching the parade. You know, like – So so uh, wait. So in this instance, the park has opened – a few years ago, and she's seeing past versions of herself in the park, right? I definitely think so. Yeah, I th- I think that there's yeah. Let's say there. Let's say there's a four year buffer between when Arnold died and Logan and William had that conversation. Let's just say uh, she would have done things in those past four years and uh, could remember them. I don't know. Uh, no, she's at this day of the dead parade, and then uh, she seems to pass out, and then the next scene we see is of her and Ford. And then the next scene, she's talking with William, and William says something like, "Oh, you seemed like kind of out of it last night. What happened there? Like, did did, did she pass out? And then uh, William just was like, "Oh, I can't find her. Like, did Ford take her in? And then William's like, "Well, I can't find her. So uh, we do hear we do hear vaguely on the soundtrack, like whatever the command is, may you dream a deep and." dreamless slumber or whatever uh you hear anthony hawkins voice very faintly saying that on the soundtrack of the day of the dead parade so you know in theory she passes out but like yeah if william wasn't like did william see her do that i mean there's a lot of questions and a lot of people are wondering if these interviews with ford or bernard actually physically take place backstage in delos or if it's some sort of like like link between the I know link between the robots in play and like a robot that looks like them behind the scenes or does it all take place inside their robot heads I don't know there's a lot of questions but the the phys- like trying to pin down the physicality of them extracting these these uh, robots or androids or whatever to have these interrogations and then putting them back without anyone noticing is is sketchy uh, to say the least yeah it's it, it is more believable to think that 
these interrogation scenes happen in some different time period than to try and put together how they uh, how they recovered them, you know, between these scenes. Like, I mean, just- people in the chat room are uh, like, we're live broadcasting this, right? People in the chat room are like, obviously it's a cybernetic link or VR or something like that. But I mean, what we have seen is uh, some of the robots, the androids physically there, you know, like they're actually there because... Because Ford like cuts into one of their faces, right? Yeah, Ford cuts into their faces or like the damaged ones are there, you know, so like sometimes these interrogation scenes are with damaged robots and sometimes they're a VR like link. Like that's that's uh, sketchy storytelling. In yeah, my I, opinion. I, I agree. I agree. Yeah. It makes no sense. I think the, the interrogations are all happening at a different timeline. They're strategically placed in these episodes to deceive you into thinking that it's all one same timeline. Uh, so it's kind of annoying, but whatever. We, we see through U.S. world, and hopefully we're right. Otherwise, the smugness is for no reason whatsoever. But, the, uh, but basically, yeah, William says the next reason. Um, he says, yesterday, you seemed out of sorts. Is what, that, that is how her passing out is, uh, is conveyed. You know, like, right. who knows what happened that night? He says, yesterday, you seemed out of sorts. Um, you feeling better this morning? She says, I had troubled dreams, but I feel more myself now. So... That's how that is dismissed. So then, um, what happens? Later on, uh, they go to meet El Lazo. It is Lawrence. And earlier on in the episode, we had seen the man in black kill and hang Lawrence. And drain him. And drain his blood to, you know, and to put his blood into Teddy's body, I guess. Uh, And... That is a big moment, Joanna, and I felt like it should have been bigger. Uh, I felt like there should have been some big reveal, uh, but uh, certainly it really knocked me off my feet when I saw it because because uh, this whole time, you know, Joanna, you've been advocating this two timeline theory. I've had various levels of skepticism about it. First, I was on board, then I was off board, then I was back on again, uh, and it seems with this reveal of Lawrence that th- that is some pretty strong evidence. That this is taking place in two different timelines and that the Logan and William, like one, either Logan or William, and we'll get to who it is uh, later in this podcast, becomes the man in black later. Like, do you you feel like the Lawrence reveal, the only other explanation of why Lawrence would be there at Pariah, at this town that's like theoretically far removed from anything else going on in the park, is that either there's duplicate versions of hosts – as I already mentioned, which I, th- I thought would be a, compu- a confusing gaming experience, or uh, number two, like that the uh, Man in Black storyline takes place separately from the William and Logan storyline, but that it is days and not 30 years, right? That maybe he kills Lawrence and then the, the techs recover Lawrence's body and then they replace him back in, you know, in, right. in Pariah, right? Right. Now, that doesn't, that also doesn't explain, like, I guess, why. Lawrence appears to be on an earlier part of his loop than uh, – well, maybe they just reset him to the start of his loop, you know? And Ed Harris, when we first meet Lawrence in the show, was intersect, in, interacting with him on a later part of his loop, right? Right. Once he had been caught and Yeah, being and he's hanged. about to be yeah. hanged, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that uh, to me – it confirms, like, it, to me, it confirms the two timeline theory to the point that any argument now is you trying to convince me it's not yeah. two 
two timelines. I'm no longer trying to convince you it is. <laughs> you have to convince me it's not. And plenty of people have with Lauren, the Lawrence El Lazo thing in the last, you know, 12 hours since the episode aired. They're like, well, they get to Pariah during the daytime. They have to wait until the next day to meet El Lazo. That's why we see the Day of the Dead parade and stuff like that. Right. And so in theory, the text could have taken him then, cleaned him up, put more blood back in him, give him some fresh clothing, but the same clothing, and put him back in the storyline. But like, what what doesn't quite track for me is like, El Lazo was already established as a as a character. Like they were on their way to meet El Lazo, and it's possible that like, if the Man of Black hadn't killed him, then when they got to Pariah, they've been like, oh, El Lazo's gone. Like you know, like that's possible, <laughs> right. but it just doesn't seem probable to me. Like all these things seems like. People have to now work harder to convince me that there is one solitary timeline. And I actually, I mean, we can get to this or not if we have time, but I actually think there's more than two timelines. But um, the Lawrence thing for me, for me, seals two timelines. Uh, yeah, the burden of proof is now on the non-two timeline believers. That's right? what I think, yeah. 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 Uh, so we are rapidly running out of time. Like we, you know, we got to finish up in the next thirty minutes. So I'm going to try to fast forward past some of this stuff. But basically, uh, they go on a mission to steal some nitroglycerin for the Confederados. Uh, we see the heist. Uh, Logan just starts messing with people, and uh, William just kills people to save Logan's life. Some questions here that we'll come back to in just a bit about like what damage the park will allow uh hosts to do to guests uh but you know we'll get to that because logan is being choked right yeah and he seems to really be feeling it it doesn't seem like he's uh play choking um anyway so they go back to pariah uh lawrence you know gives the confederados the nitroglycerin uh and he he's like you know you guys could use that now but why not uh have a night of celebration and they go to this like caligula Esque uh, orgy room right. that appears, right? Uh, and uh, you point out here in the show notes that the song is Nine Inch Nails, Something I Could Never Have. Uh, <laughs> Dolores and William, this is like, uh, you know, this is like when you're at prom and you, <laughs> you and your uh, date are so awkward and uncomfortable, you're not even dancing, you're just standing off to the side. It's like that, except instead of people dancing, they're having an orgy. Uh, it was. It felt very awkward, uh, but um, you you point out here also that HBO got into some amount of controversy for the amount of sexual content that was included in the show. Right, like there were some news stories I read last year about how uh, what they were asking of their uh, background artists was a little bit extreme. Right? Yeah, SAG-AFTRA got upset with HBO. HBO then put it on Central Casting. But basically, Central Casting said, extras will be required to take part in graphic se- sexual situations, including genital-to-genital touching and simulated oral sex with hand-to-genital touching, which I think is beyond what SAG-AFTRA sort of like allows you to ask an extra to do. And so um, HBO got slapped on the wrist for that and then HBO was like nope it wasn't us it was central casting so but but the, but what that story meant is that we all knew a massive orgy was coming in Westworld season one so here it is the orgy yeah also according to Deadline the more than 50 naked extras taking part in the filming are being well paid for touching one another's genitals and such up to $600 I assume that's per day uh, according to a source familiar with the shoot so uh, that is how much people in the background got paid to s- simulate that they were having sex um, yeah. A lot of 
awesome background information you're finding on this Decoding Westworld podcast. Uh, <laughs> so what else happens? Logan and William have this big fight, right? Because William, let's be honest, John Robinson, William has been kind of a downer this trip, right? Uh-huh. Every time Logan is like, let's do this, let's do this fun thing, William has been kind of like, I don't want to do this anymore. Let's let's rape this. Let's shoot this. <laughs> oh, William, why are you such a wet blanket? Yeah, Ugh. let's put our dick in this. Let's yeah. kill this. You know, yeah. like, uh, William just doesn't want to do any of that stuff. Yeah. And they have this confrontation where Logan basically calls him out on being uh, not super manly. I'll read, I'll read a little bit of the dialogue here. You remember the day when you finally got those three fancy letters? EVP, Executive Vice President. You walked into my office in that cheap black suit of yours, and you shook my hand, and you thanked me for the opportunity. That was the best day of your life. Ugh. End quote. Uh, basically talking about how, like, that's all William can aspire to. Also gives a little bit of, of info on the power dynamic. Like, William is obviously coming at this from the outsider perspective, and Logan's family is the one that's very powerful. Um, but, you know... Logan's mocking William, saying, like, hey, you are you have very few aspirations in life, and you're not ambitious enough. You're not, you're not enough of a, of a person to not only, like, aspire to more, but, like, just even enjoy life. And uh, then, you know, William's about to mess up Logan and then stops. He stops, and Logan's like, just like I thought, you know, like, confirming Logan's uh, belief that William is a wimp. Yeah. Uh, I thought this was a pretty cool scene uh, and kind of does a good job of conveying the dynamic between them. Uh, and also very interesting that it's set at an orgy as well. So uh, any other thoughts on this dynamic? Anything you want to highlight from it? Uh, yeah, I guess um, I, I have to say I, I do want to take a moment and say that I think all of the actors on this show are incredible except I think Ben Barnes is like the weakest link as Logan. And um, – I get it that Logan's kind of a cardboard villain, but I think we are seeing just better shading on the other characters than this particular one. So it, it might not be writing. It might be the writing. It may not be Ben Barnes, but I like, you know. Yeah, it feels like the writing to me because he seems a little bit cartoonish, right? He's he seems- also tasked, as you said, with a lot of exposition dump. Like he had to give Park exposition dump and then he just had to give William's backstory basically in an exposition dump. So like, yeah, it's it's some tricky writing that he has to pull off. But I think Ben Barnes, just from what I've seen uh, like him do elsewhere, I, I'm not convinced that he's like the best actor in the whole world. Uh, he's fine. He's fine, but it just feels like two-dimensional, I think. Um, and yeah, and, and I think what we're seeing, and, and we'll see it you know, as William and Dolores skip town, but what we're seeing is William being seduced by the park in his own way, right? Like um, in that heist where he shoots people, like he does it for a virtuous reason, but he still he also like kind of likes it, right? It seems like to me. And, and with Dolores as this like, uh, you know – strong fiery woman who like won't be the damsel but needs him anyway like he's being seduced by narrative which is just means the park knows how to get you one way or another i think right if it's not going to get you with like gold painted whores then it's going to get you with someone like dolores so that's yeah i just kept thinking like man that firstly obviously getting painted would be uncomfortable but like i don't know if i'd want to have sex with someone who is painted you know like it just seems like it would be awkward and weird. You know, was that the only one that had that thought, Joanna? Uh, I don't know. I guess you just haven't had enough James Bond uh, fantasies in your life. Yeah, that really ended well for that character that was painted <laughs> in James Bond. I always think of um, 
the uh, is Buddy Ebsen, right, who was in The Wizard of Oz, who got painted silver and had an allergic reaction because he was originally cast as the Tin Man, had to go to the hospital. They recast him because he couldn't tolerate the makeup and they used new makeup. But I always think that anytime someone's full body painted, I was like, is someone going to go to the hospital over this? Yeah, oh I, I would be like, if, if I was in that situation, I would be so concerned about the person who was painted. Yeah. Like, are you comfortable? Like, do you want to wash that off first? You know, anyway. Uh, all right. So what happens is we also see that Eliza replaces the uh, nitroglycerin with like – it seems to be alcohol and uh, he's going to use it for his own purposes. Uh, and then this, this ruse is discovered. They start beating up on Logan and William runs away with Dolores and gets onto this train car that has Eliza in it. I do want to point out that before they, they get away, Logan gives uh, William this look like, save me, you know, and uh, William just declines to do so. And Logan kind of gives a smile. Like, yeah. You know, hey, you finally become a man and you're you're now self-actualizing and you have but become I, a bastard like me. You know? uh, yeah. And, and I don't even think it was like pride. It was like, we got you. That's what it looked like to right. me. I got I, like the park got you. I, I got you. Right. I, you know, um, and uh, the other thing I want to say, oh, about harming uh, a guest. Because yeah, uh, Logan is being wailed on. He's being right. injured grievously, it seems, during this scene. We saw in episode two when William was getting his sort of like intake with uh, the host in the white dress, uh, played by Tallulah Riley, that she asked him a lot of questions. And he was like, why? And she said, well, we need we want to like figure out, you know, how much pain you can tolerate. Something like that. And he's like, oh, I thought you couldn't get hurt. She's like, oh, well, you know, as much as you can take or something like saucier like that. Uh-huh. So basically, I think that uh, Logan probably has his uh, pain tolerance dialed way up. Because I think we saw him get like some some uh, pain also in his sex uh, scene in Sweetwater. So like I think he just he's like, yep, beat me up. I'm into it. I'm here for it. You know. Uh, whereas other people might be like, yeah, please don't even touch me. Thank you. So that's my that's my take on it. I could be wrong. Uh, yeah, I think that sounds right. And theoretically, Logan would have his pain tolerances probably set pretty high as a veteran of the park. So. Um, so yeah, I, I think that, that sounds, that sounds right to me. It does kind of conflict with this idea that the host couldn't hurt anyone and like them not hurting flies was kind of a big part of episode one, but, uh, maybe the park has just changed in 30 years too, Joanna. That's another possibility, right? True. Um, anyway, so. <laughs> well, I did, I did have that theory that I, I think I floated to you like two weeks ago off air about, we were talking about the difference between bullets that hit William and bullets that hit the man in black. Right. Like maybe How- bullet technology has advanced in 30 years, right? Right. <laughs> like William gets bruised and the man in black is fine. And everyone's like, oh, that's just because he's been shot a lot. But like, maybe they just made their bullets smarter and yeah. they, they don't hurt you as much in 30 years. Whoa. Okay. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> you just blew my mind, John. Okay, so uh, Man in Black stuff, uh, Lawrence and the Man in Black, uh, they are still interact in this episode. Uh, and then uh, the Man in Black concludes that like Lawrence is not going to be the one to bring him to the destination. It's going to be uh, it's going to be Teddy. Yeah. Uh, because like they need to get to Wyatt, and Teddy knows how to get to Wyatt. It's just. It's this relatively new question mark plotline that's been introduced into Teddy and into the park. Uh, they encounter young Anthony Hopkins. Uh, we assume. We, we assume. We assume. Uh, young Anthony Hopkins, who I, I, we also assume is a host. And 
I think we know he's a host just because we've seen. We see him like, yeah. Anthony Hopkins. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But whether or not he's young Anthony Hopkins, we don't know yet. Yeah. Uh, And then the man in black uses uh, Lawrence's blood to revive Teddy. So like a lot of stuff going on in the scene. Like what, what are some important takeaways in your opinion? That like the technology in Westworld is crazy. That the bro. Okay, so this is a thing that a lot of people want to talk about. The robots now, apparently, according to the Man in Black's info dump, uh, they're <laughs> organic. Uh, and um, I mean, they've got some circuitry in them, but largely organic. We've seen them be constructed uh, like by like three D printer in the lab. Um, and that you know, the Man in Black says initially they were you know circuitry inside, million perfect pieces. I think he said. Yeah. Um, and he also says, quote, you used to be beautiful. When this place started, I opened one of you up once, million little perfect pieces. Then they changed you, made you this sad, real mess, flesh and bone, just like us. They said it would improve the park experience, but all they really did it for was uh, it was cheaper. Right. So a lot of people, a lot of people who are looking to argue against the two timeline theory are saying that the way we can track where we are is the tech in the robots. Are they circuitry based or are they organic based? But what I want to say is I believe the robots that we see and this is I mean, I'll confess to you, this is based on things I've seen in the trailer for like the season long of Westworld where they sh- they showed so I don't think it's totally cheating where they showed like how some of the older robots were constructed like you see Evan Rachel Woods like sort of face being put on a circuitry body um and so it's flesh over circuitry so when you see William shoot robots and blood comes out to me that doesn't mean necessarily that they're the modern organic robots there was still the appearance of organics um, in the 30 years ago. So that's that's my take. I could be wrong. You guys could be right. There's clearly is a difference between old Bill, who's like herky-jerky mechanic, versus Dolores and Maeve and all that sort of thing. But um, we'll see as we go forward. But I don't consider the circuitry versus organic to necessarily disqualify the two-timeline theory. That's fair enough. I think there's some dispute about old Bill looks like so much less advanced than any of the other robots that have happened, and so theoretically, if uh, if the incident with Arnold happened 34 years prior to modern day storyline, uh, and then Logan and William is within that time period, right? Then um, the stuff with Old Bill must have ha- happened like way long ago. It must have been when Arnold was still alive that Old Bill was deployed, right? Right, because like Old Bill. Old Bill looks even like way older and less advanced than the robots we saw in flashback. Um, you know, when when uh, Ford was talking about the construction of the park, we see them dancing, and then we see them sort of like later traumatically scratched in the lab. Yeah. Like they all look like they look now. Someone was like, "They're hurt. They're jerkily dancing." I'm like, "No, they're learning how to dance. They're not like robotically learning how to dance. They don't yeah. know how to dance, but they have hum- human like behavior. They all look way more advanced than Old Bill. So I feel like Old Bill was like an early model that never even got deployed in the park. Maybe I don't know. I don't. I don't know if that's true, but it's it's a it's a curious question. Yeah, because it does it doesn't it's not clean. The thirty year like this thing is taking place in two different timelines. It's not super clean, in my opinion. Um, There are some problems, including like when yeah when was Old Bill deployed in relation to William and Logan's you know uh, time period if it was in fact thirty years ago. Uh, 
And also, how does that square with the flashbacks with young Anthony Hopkins? Like, it must have been – young Anthony Hopkins must have been 50 years ago then. You know what I mean? Like, what's going on there? So, all right. Then, Matt, like, I'm going to just fast forward to the end of this plot line and say Man in Black and Ford have a confrontation, right? It's pretty intense. And uh, it, it's an awesome – confrontation because it reminded me of like the scene in the cafe in heat with like right. al pacino and de niro where it's just like these two acting titans coming together uh and like having this like tense meeting and uh also in the in the uh, reality of the universe they're they're uh, very important people as well right, right so right. uh so they you know ford just wants to know what is going on the man in black explains to him firstly it's revealed that the man in black is just making up this part about dolores to get teddy into the game right yeah uh when when ford says that last part doesn't sound familiar uh that i thought that was a a funny little bit but anyway um uh, the man in black says Wyatt on on the other hand that's something new is he just another stooge for the tourists to mount on their wall at home or have you finally made a worthy adversary someone to stop me from finding the center of the maze and what is it you're hoping to find there Ford asks uh, you know why you exist Teddy the world out there the one you'll never see was one of plenty a fat soft teat people cling to their entire life every need taken care of except one purpose meaning so they come here, they can be a little scared, a little thrilled, enjoy some sweetly affirmative bullshit, and then they take a fucking picture and they go back home. But I think there's a deeper meaning a hiding under all that, something the person who created it wanted to express, something true. Uh, so, yeah, that's what the Man in Black indicates he's trying to find. Uh, I also like how the Man in Black threatens Ford in this uh, scene. And then Teddy just seemingly out of like reflex grabs his knife and plunges it into the table, uh, showing how kind of omnipotent Ford is. We kind of saw a little bit of that when he controlled all those hosts effortlessly and now can do the same thing with Teddy, like maybe there's some built-in subroutine or whatever. I don't don't think it's that. I think it's, um, we talked about this earlier, the Jonathan Nolan and Lisa Nolan uh, said that there's this good Samaritan reflex in the robots that anytime you see a host uh, guest wanting to harm another guest, uh, a host will step in and intercede. And we – because we talked over and over again about like how do you prevent host-on-host violence within the park? And their thing was like, well, all the robots will throw themselves in the way of harm if they need to. And that's exactly what Teddy does, right? He de-escalates the situation by taking the knife. Um, And so like it might might be Ford controlling him, but I think this is also just an example of something they promised us, which is that the robots have a reflex to stop hosts from from guests from harm. Other guests. All right, but Joanna, let me make you a bet. Okay, let's say you're someone who doesn't read those interviews. Maybe I, I would wager we're never going to see this happen again. Like uh, for the rest of the season, like it, it, with someone that's not Ford. Like I just don't think that it's going to be a major plot point, and therefore the one impression we're going to be left with is that Ford is incredibly powerful. That's my. I'm going to go on the limb and great, say, "Great, like, I'll take that bet." <laughs> all right. Sure. Um, um, but I think the other thing that's I'll be proven wrong next episode. I think the mo- the other thing that's important to note in this scene is that to me is that knife. Uh, someone uh, like I think, and I thought this before. Someone sent me something. Someone sent me something. I'm not going to talk about. It's not a spoiler, but it's. I don't think I should talk about it. But like to me, that knife is flashing around in a way in that scene that told me to look for that knife again. 
Mm. So that's mm. what I'll say. A uh, Chekhov's knife with a distinctive handle. So yeah, and the kind of blade structure. Is- yeah, and I, and I think Ford looks at the knife as if like I've seen this before. That's what it looked like to me in that scene. Well, rewatch it. Let me know what you think. But it looks to me like Ford's like, oh, this old thing. Great, here mm. it is again. So we'll see. Uh, but the reason I make that going back to the bet I made about like we're never gonna we're never gonna see that good Samaritan reflex again. It feels like in that interview they were writing checks they couldn't cash. Uh, is what I'm saying. I'm I'm gonna put that out there as like that the reason we see it in this episode is just again to convey how amazingly powerful Ford is and how much control he exerts over his entire creation. Uh, anyway, so I, I, yeah, I think um, the other thing I want to note in this scene is you know. Two things. One, the adversary. I personally, I'm just going to lay out another theory right here. I don't think the adversary is Wyatt. I think the adversary is Dolores. Um, like, I think she's going to be the ultimate weapon against the Man in Black if the Man in Black is William. We saw in this episode William, like, really enthralled by Dolores. So I think Dolores is a weakness for the Man in Black if the Man in Black is William. That's my one prediction. She's the adversary that Ford is deploying to take the Man in Black down. The other thing I want to say in this scene is if the Man in Black is William, I thought what Ford said about how the Man in Black's villainy is fueled by anxiety really like reminded me of Logan taunting William. Like he's just picking at his insecurities to try to get a rise out of him the same way we saw earlier in the episode. So those are two uh, things I want to note in that scene. And that's all. All right. Uh, Well, I want to get more to, you know, the William Man in Black connection later if we have time. But uh, a couple things with Elsie that happened this episode. Uh, She's working on Bart, a naked black host. Uh, You've written a note here in the show notes. I'm not going to read it out loud, but can you explain what this is? (laughs) Oh, Wesley Morris, a a brilliant writer who currently works for the New York Times. Pulitzer Prize winning writer, yep. (laughs) Uh, wrote a piece last week that a lot of people were talking about called The Last Taboo, I believe it was called. Um, And it's a great piece. You should read it. And when I read – I had already seen this episode when I read it and I was wondering if he had already seen this episode. It's about – the subtitle is Why why Pop Culture Just Can't Deal with Black Male Sexuality. And it's all about – black penises on screen and when they're shown and how they're shown and and the scarcity with which they're shown or that they can never be shown in a way that isn't about like uh stereotypes about male sexuality and so like here we have you know a black penis in this scene and elsie is making jokes about his impressive talent so i was like watching the you know when i read wesley morris's article i was wondering if he's seen this episode and then i was also wondering like what he would think of this scene so that's all. Yeah. Uh, and this is presumably a time in our uh, human history when we have overcome that taboo, I guess. Uh, but, uh, yeah. Well, I don't know. I think it plays into what Morris is saying about, like, you can't show a black cock without it being some sort of joke about – sorry sorry if my language is too foul for people uh, – without it being – like highly sexualized whereas you can show a naked white person like in repose it doesn't have to be about sexuality it can just be about a naked person i see that we're not quite there yet with black actors and um yeah so uh, read the article wesley makes the points much better than i ever would so do that gotcha if, if you want to read this article <laughs> i mean i think I, I think it's notable at all that it is shown you know at all uh which like the vast majority of shows on TV 
couldn't or wouldn't do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but your your point is taken that it is kind of rendered as a not necessarily a joke, but certainly not a point to be taken seriously in in this episode. Just that we've seen like Abernathy naked, and like it didn't have to be about you know his sexuality or something like that. Do you know? Like I don't yeah. know. I, I'm not offended. I'm just I'm just curious how this fits in to the larger narrative of something that a lot of people were talking about last week. So. So then she uh, – Elsie decides she needs to get to the bottom of this whole situation with uh, the host who caved in his own head. Uh, she like goes down to the uh, lab technician level and blackmails a guy who's been having sex with uh, unconscious hosts into allowing her access. Where She then pulls out a device that is apparently sending data out of the park. To who knows what for what knows like what yeah. is, is completely un, like unaware. Uh, I am pretty uninterested in the storyline right now. I'll just say like uh, we have there's so little information here that I don't really sure I could spin myself up on a lot of theorizing, but like who cares in my opinion? Uh, if the show does more to establish like why we should care, then maybe. But is this something you're particularly interested in? I'm intrigued by it certainly, but yeah. uh, I think the other mysteries are more compelling to me right now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, there is a concern. I was reading Matt Singer's recap of this episode about how, like, the show is con- like still introducing mysteries in episode five and not doing much to wrap, uh, you know, existing mysteries up. Yeah, right. And that's kind of a concern because we're already halfway through the season. So finally, this is well. This is at least a continue. This is a continuation of the mystery of this woodcutter going off his. You know, like it's not a brand new mystery. It's a further development in why that particular host like went up into the mountains. Yeah, I I guess that's right. And I guess, you know, there's this whole mystery of uh, what the Dallas Corporation is actually doing. And presumably this satellite uplink is related to that, right? That uh, there's some kind of corporate espionage going on. So. But I certainly would not disagree with Matt Singer or with you or anyone else that Westworld is setting up a lot, writing a lot of checks that it better be able to cash. Yeah. 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 So then uh, the final scene in the episode, we ha- we see these two lab technicians uh, and they're, they're hanging out, they're talking. Maeve had come alive earlier in their working together. And we find out Asian lab technician, uh, a.k.a. Felix – is trying to repair a bird in the park, I guess, like as a side project to try and prove that he can uh, he can code or, or you know, p- potentially work somewhere else other than the bowels of the park. Uh, and at the end, like, Maeve comes alive. It's a really shocking moment. Uh, and she knows Felix's name. So it indicates that she's probably alive throughout many of her previous cleanings, right? Because she could not – only, not only was she conscious, but she could comprehend what was happening and knew how to separate uh, the reality of Westworld from the reality of her you know, being in this situation. Uh, so we'll find out more about what she has to say to Felix next week. Any other thoughts on this Maeve situation before we I, dive into theories? I have to say of all the storylines that are going on right now, I'm most intrigued by Maeve. Uh, like I'm most excited to see what happens with Tandy Newton backstage at Westworld. I think yeah. it's going to be interesting. So yeah, should be fun. So uh, that is our recap for this episode. Now a uh, lot of theory stuff we got to follow up on. Probably yeah. too much. Probably too much. <laughs> um, firstly, wanted to read this 
email from Chris from Commerce Texas uh, who writes in about uh, the quote used by Ford to whip Teddy back into shape after talking with the man in black. Look back and smile at perils past is a quote from Sir Walter Scott's The Bridal of Trier, Maine, which according to Wikipedia celebrates the exploits of a knight errant, Sir Roland DeVoe, as he seeks to rescue and hopefully uh, espouse a beautiful maiden, Gwyneth. Uh, Gwyneth is the illegitimate daughter of King Arthur, doomed by Merlin 500 years previously to an enchanted sleep inside a magic castle. Uh, in other words, it's basically a sleeping beauty story. An errant knight comes to save a beautiful maiden from her deep and dreamless slumber, uh, a.k.a. her enchanted sleep. I doubt this quote is a coincidence. So that email comes in from Chris from Commerce, Texas. I thought that was an interesting reference to yeah. what's going on with uh, Ford and Teddy in that confrontation they have. Uh, all right. We got a lot of emails and a lot of tweets and a lot of things that irritated you, and, and including myself. Like, I thought this a bunch of times that maybe if this is taking place 30 years apart, that it's actually Logan who becomes the man in black and not William. And you do not like this theory, Jonah. Yeah, I don't want to classify it as irritating me. It's certainly not like a Sansa pregnancy situation. Um, I just think, like, I hear you guys. I hear you saying you think it's Logan is the man in black. But, like, what a lot of people are saying is, like, doesn't it make more sense for Logan to be the man in black since he's, like, a black hat and a bad guy and the man in black is a black hat and a bad guy? And I'm like, no. In my opinion, it's better storytelling if you start out one way and you end a different way. And it's more, I think – heartbreaking and upsetting for us to see William start out as a good guy uh, with good intentions and to become whatever it is Ed Harris has become. And even if Ed Harris is not like as villainous as maybe we originally thought he was, like I'm reconsidering the whole what we thought was a rape scene in the first episode. I don't think it was. I think it's him trying to get information from Dolores. So I don't think that he becomes like as evil as maybe the show led you to believe. But I think it's uh, – you know, I don't want to say dramatic irony, but it is it's interesting storytelling to me to watch William go along, watch him get seduced, as we are seeing, into some violence, cheating on his fiance a little bit by kissing Dolores, which, you know, originally he thought he was too good for. Like all this sort of thing, to see the park work its, you know, magic on him and what that turns him into. Like I think we're headed towards something terrible happening to William. And it's going to make him bitter for the rest of his life. And to he's either going to keep returning to the park to try to recapture something that he found in Dolores, found there, uh, or try to destroy it, which is what it seems like he's at the point now trying to destroy it. But that's that's my take on why I feel like it has to be William. Um, Dave, do you want to hit me with a counter-argument? Uh, I think my counter-argument is – that you're right, so it's really a terrible counter argument in the sense that in the sense that you're right, that is better storytelling. Like that is more interesting uh, from a character arc perspective. Uh, but it does kind of make sense if Logan is a man in black. Like maybe maybe the thing that happens is like something horrible happens to William, and it causes Logan to be even more extreme and aggro than he already is, right? And like that could be interesting. Not as interesting as what you said, but still pretty interesting. Also, Logan's already kind of a dick, and the man in black is kind of a dick as well. And so it kind of matches up. Like, it makes sense. And, you know, they both wear similar clothes already. So, like, I I can see why people would draw that conclusion, and I don't think it's totally narratively unsatisfying. 
is what I would say. But I agree, your way is much better. I just I, I can see it the other way as well. Make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm saying I, I think I would like the story better. And it obviously it's not my story to tell, but I'd like it better if we see this happen to William. Yeah. Random uh, other question, by the way, that I didn't bring up. Like, there's all this nitroglycerin in the car at the end with William and uh, Dolores, like, in the train. And Dolores, yeah. like, puts the gun to the nitroglycerin, the, guy, the guy's body filled with nitroglycerin. Uh, what happens if she pulls the trigger? Like, hosts, we've already seen earlier, like, that you need to request a pyrotechnic effect. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, but maybe this was at a time in the park when they were playing more fast and loose with the rules, right? Maybe, if it was yeah. 30 years ago, maybe hosts could initiate pyrotechnic effect. Like, what happens? Is, is, does William die? Like, is there a small fire that William easily survives? Like, I, I just am very curious about... These are great questions. What's going on there? Anyway. All right. Uh, so, John Robinson, let's get to your theory. From last night. Because, because you know, not satisfied to simply uh, accept victory and move on, as many of us would do. <laughs> Jonah Robinson decided to dance on the graves of those who uh, did not like the uh, this Westworld is taking place in two different timelines theory by advocating another theory on top of the two timelines theory, right? Uh, and what is that theory, Jonah? Um... <sighs> Well, basically it has to do with, you know, we, we've been talking for several weeks now about the idea of Bernard being a host. And I think when I originally brought it up, or at least in episode three, I think it was, um, we talked about Bernard's similarities to Arnold. At one point, um, you know, I keep bringing up Matt Patches because he's one of the people that I talk to a lot and he's doing some great work on Thrillist about the, over the show. Um he was talking to me about all the different characters and I was like, just how many dead kids are we talking about? Like how many people have dead kids? Cause like that's narratively sloppy to me. And so that's what first started me thinking that Arnold and Bernard are the same person is like, if you're dealing with two people who are dealing with like devastating loss, um, I feel like maybe it's just one person. But the biggest evidence against that that I talked about at the time was that photo that Ford shows Bernard. He shows him a photo and is clearly not the actor Jeffrey Wright in that photo with him. So, um, you know, Bernard's an android. Bernard has the consciousness of, of, of Arnold. That's what I was working with. But then I remembered that We've seen um, the hosts, the robots, the androids, look at things that they're not supposed to recognize and not recognize anything. So when Dolores sees the Times Square photo, she says, that looks like nothing to me. So I'm wondering if maybe we saw what uh, Bernard, the android, was seeing and if we'll see that photo later and it will actually have Jeffrey Wright in the image instead of that weird face right. we saw. This in, is really in complicated. Fight, in a Fight Club-esque reveal, we'll yeah. find out that the the photo we saw of Arnold is actually of Bernard. Right. And so the reason I say this is because um, it just doesn't make sense to me. Arnold seems so important. 
uh, it doesn't make sense to me that it would be that random face who's not an actor that we recognize. So, like, some rando is going to play Arnold. Like, I'm very dissatisfied with that. Yeah. And I think I will be more satisfied if it turns out to be a someone we know or at least an actor we recognize, you know. And by recognize, I mean, like, those of us who obsessively watch too much film and television recognize. Like, so if it's Jeffrey Wright, that makes sense to me. And if that's true... So, so, so I, the th- let's just be clear. The theory is yes, that sorry. Bernard yeah. is not only a robot with the consciousness of Arnold, but that, in fact, Bernard looks like Arnold as well. Right, a clone of Arnold. He's a clone of Arnold. Right, right. Um, Because – and one of the reasons that I bring this up is, uh, you know, HBO is dumping all this extra material on this Westworld website that you can go and spend hours and hours and hours exploring. And one of the things on there is the Delos Terms of Service, which says that any physical material you leave behind you in the park, meaning like your sperm, your skin cells, your whatever, can be used by Delos for whatever they want in perpetuity, which to me means – cloning like that's that's what that means to me if you leave your dna behind we can use it for whatever we want what would you want to use it for to me it means cloning we also assume as dave chen brought up earlier in the episode we assume that the young kid we see in the park is like a young clone of anthony hopkins so cloning to me is already in the mix i know this all sounds super crackpot but the i'm getting to the point the point is to me, this help explains those Bernard-Dolores conversations, which are so confusing to me as to when they're taking place. Yep. And what I'm saying is that when we see Dolores in her blue dress and it's just her and Bernard talking in this like side exam room that nobody knows about, maybe that's actually the original human Arnold talking to Dolores right at the beginning of the park – uh, and the maze, he brings up the maze, like he, Arnold's the one who created the maze. Why would Bernard know about the maze? Like, or even be tasking Dolores of the maze. Uh, so Bernard bringing it up doesn't make sense to me. Arnold bringing it up does. So that's why, bum, 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 I think we're dealing with at least three timelines pre William, William, post William, the end. <laughs> oh, snap. Oh, snap. So, so yeah. when you told me this – firstly, I will link to this in the show notes so people can read about this. But uh, yeah. uh, this is a batshit insane theory. I mean yeah, you, you yeah. T- in order for this to, to be true, you need to believe that when you saw the photo of Arnold, you're seeing the photo of Arnold from Bernard's perspective. Right? Yeah, which is a cheat. Like I agree. It's that a is big a cheat. cheat. That is a big cheat. cheat. Um, yep. But you're right that those Dolores sequences are pretty weird and – uh, we don't know when they're taking place, and it would be a, an even bigger mindfuck if it was in fact Arnold that was actually talking with Dolores during those times. I agree; it would it would be like the the show is laying track that for it to be true, like it would be kind of satisfying. Uh, and I also said this to Joanna: this is not the first insane theory that she's had, and a lot of her theories have turned out to be correct. So I don't know if I'm quite on board with this theory, but. I'm probably on the fence. I'm probably 50-50 on this one. Yeah, um, that's fair. That's more here, than I deserve probably. <laughs> here's, and so we'll link, to, we'll link to the show notes. You can read all about it. Here is the bigger concern for me, Joanna. Okay? And Alan Sepinwall wrote about this. Other people have written about this. Is we are now, we are now, we are now entering a situation where every aspect of the show needs to be viewed through the lens of the two-timeline theory. Meaning that if the two-timeline theory is true – it completely changes Dolores' narrative arc, 
right? She is no longer a uh, host who is slowly becoming human. She's a host who's becoming human who then gets totally reset later on. And, like, right. all that work is theoretically, like, completely erased. And, yeah, there's a kind of very memento-esque tragedy to that where, like, a host needs to then return to her loop even after undergoing this crazy journey of self-discovery. But, you know, it's just – it's not the same thing as a host actually going on that journey of self-discovery and making maybe breaking free of, of the bonds of her creators. Yeah, so I, I talked about this a couple weeks ago about how if 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 the Nolans are so enamored of a mystery that they're really bugging with what we think we're seeing, uh, intentionally misleading us, like really, really, uh, it, it, like just in a really heavy-handed way, um, how that does mess with our uh, perception of character arc of narrative progression, of all these sort of things. So I went to this weekend, I went and rewatched The Prestige because I think that that's like, I think the best example of the Nolans pulling off a twist that I did not see coming and and a twist to hide a second twist. Um, Basically, you get the Christian Bale reveal and the Hugh Jackman reveal. And like, I concluded two things. One, if The Prestige were a six episode miniseries, Reddit would have figured out the twist by episode two. They would have freeze, <laughs> they would have freeze framed Christian Bale under that makeup and been like, oh, by the way, that's Christian Bale. You know, like, uh, so there's no way you can sustain something like they did in The Prestige over 10 episodes of an HBO show or five seasons of an HBO show, right? I think with Reddit being as clever and active as it is. The second thing is, does the twist of the prestige change what you like you do have to rewatch the prestige and every single scene you're like okay that's that christian bale okay that's that's his sorry spoilers for the prestige again like that's his twin brother like that's christian bale that's his twin brother like doing that knowing that does change you have to watch it twice and so i feel like people are going to want to watch westworld twice or they're going to throw in the towel and be like screw you for this you know so i'm curious to see what the reaction is if the two timeline theory is true I think either way, you're playing a dangerous game these days if you are doing a show that's 10 episodes long and where you ha- you're building up to this big reveal. Like, anytime you attempt something like that, uh, you're playing with fire. Because if, in fact, the twist is discerned in the first three episodes, which I don't think they were anticipating, uh, then the, the whole buildup is going to be pretty anticlimactic. In other words, if they don't reveal the two timelines as true until, let's say, episode 8, 9, or 10, we, we've already been living with this for a month or two months at that point, right? And what could they possibly show us that would be satisfying at that point? Like, I guarantee you, if the reveal doesn't happen until episode 9, the way they do it will not be satisfying to us, is right, my it, guess. Because it, it's not. it's going to seem like, oh, well, I already knew that for the last six weeks, so they're not going to be able to do it in a way that makes it mind-blowing. Unless, I, of course, your thing is also true, right? And, and, and like, yeah, and, and that's what the prestige does, right? It, it, it distracts you with one twist. I mean, I don't think – I don't consider the Hugh Jackman reveal in the prestige to be, like, a twist necessarily. But it right. is, like, a, like a big shocking moment. Yeah. So you're, so you're already dealing with the Christian Bale reveal as they reveal the Hugh Jackman thing. So, like, a twist to hide a bigger twist – is, I think, a Nolan-esque thing to do. And so that's why I was looking for, like, after I watched The Prestige, I was like, okay, let's say two timelines is right. Let's say Bernard is an android. What's a further twist that they're going to drop on me later on? Which is how I got to this, like, Arnold thing. Yeah. Um, and 
I agree with you that there's probably nothing they can do in episode nine and ten for us to be like, whoa, but unless it's Mars, guys, whoa, but um, is that the Nolan's fault? Um, or is it the fault of how we watch TV now? You and I went on a big like discussion about theorizing and and speculation and what it's doing, and like maybe it would have been better for the West, for Westworld to be like a binge model thing when we wouldn't have time to pick it apart. And so when we got to, you know like I watched those first four episodes, it never occurred to me that there was two timelines. Mm. Like it were not for Reddit, it would never have occurred to me. So I probably would have gotten to the end and I would have been like, whoa, you know, because but, we're not, okay, okay, not but but would it, it on a week by week basis? Would you have would it have occurred to you if you saw this episode is the question i have no idea right uh because no when you idea. see lawrence and he's breathing fine and has all his blood in him you know maybe it's like hey there's something fishy going on here maybe right? maybe maybe it would have been like my first inkling but that's five episodes in my first inkling as opposed to episode two someone on reddit's like boom the logos are different bro you know so um that's my really bad impression of a redditor <laughs> nice like good um, job but uh, yeah, I, I, like I wonder, like, do we want to fault the Nolans? Maybe we want to fault the Nolan. I mean, Jonathan Nolan has already, or Jonah Nolan, if you want to call him, like, has already run a TV show on CBS that a lot of people like, Person of Interest. I never watched it, but a lot of people who love it consider it a well plotted uh, show with a plan. They they've been telling me this for weeks and trying to get me to watch it. I'm not going to watch Person of Interest, but apparently that's their evidence that Jonah Nolan can pull something like this off. Um. But do we do we want to say that maybe they underestimated uh, how twisty their twists would be uh, because they didn't think that the TV audience would catch on this quickly? Casey Bloys, HBO president of programming, Casey Bloys said this last week in an interview that fans are getting close with their theories. That's why also I think like – if you think there's two be- timelines. That was before he read your article, though, right? Yeah, and then he was like, whoa, no. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. So, all right. I, I agree that your article and that theory would would truly be mind-blowing, I think. I think if they were able to pull off, like you said, a twist to hide another twist, that would truly be mind-blowing. But I do think they do bear some of the blame because anytime you, you, like your entire season hinges on a big reveal, if that reveal is deciphered too quickly – you're you're putting yourself in jeopardy of like people not being able to to appreciate other aspects of your show or not being able to even understand what you're trying to do with other aspects of your show uh, unless they have a repeat viewing. So oh, yeah, I do I'm- I think I do think they have some responsibility because like yeah if there is a big twist coming if the two timelines twist is coming then they're probably putting it near the end and uh and you know. They knew that going in. They knew they're going to hinge the entire season on this, and they knew there's a pot. They took that risk going in, and it might burn them. You know, it might. It yeah. might. Um, I, you know, once again, I rewatch the Prestige. Uh, not you, people listening, or you <laughs> if you want to, because it's a great movie. But also because to look at how they reveal, you know, how they flash back through the whole movie to reveal to you what you just saw. They do it very quickly and efficiently. But I'm like, there's no way they can flash back through 10 hours of TV to be like, <laughs> well, here she was in the future and here she was in the past. Like, right. I, there's just too many too, too many much. Like, I, yeah. I mean, maybe they'll pull it off. And if they do, I promise you I'll give them a round of applause. But yeah. I'm really worried about how they're going to reveal this to a way in which the casual, the casual viewer who's not listening to podcasts or reading Reddit, like... Uh, how is the casual viewer going to take all this in? I'm I'm curious how they serve it up uh, in a clean, hopefully efficient way. <laughs> if 
the two timeline theory is real. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I hear you. I hear you. Uh, yeah. So a lot of a uh, lot lot riding on this. Now. Like it, it it is becoming this house of cards that is becoming more precarious with every single episode. And where it all goes, you know, we don't know yet. But if uh, we hope they can deliver on what they're setting up, because it does seem to be like a pretty. It does seem like there's a lot of potential for some pretty, you know, satisfying reveals. But it's gonna be a fine, fine line to walk. So, all right, I think uh, we've run out of time. We've yeah. we're, we're more than run out of time at this point. Um, but uh, Jonah Robinson, uh, you want to let people know where you can find more of your work on the internet this week? I mean, you can find me on Vanity Fair going down the rabbit hole about Westworld. You can follow me on Twitter at Joe Wrote This. You can listen to me talk about Black Mirror this week on the Storm of Spoilers podcast. Um, and that's it. And find uh, all my stuff at DaveChen.me. You can email us at DecodingWestworld at gmail.com and find more episodes of the show at DecodingWestworld.com. I should point out one last thing, Joanna, before we wrap up, which is I had a chance to interview the director of Season 1, Episode 4, uh, Vincenzo Natali, who directed Dissonance Theory. And he did not know if the two timelines theory is true. So the director of the fourth episode of the show was not aware if the two timelines theory is true. Now you could you could take that as evidence that it's not true, or you could take that as evidence that they are very good, the showrunners, at protecting uh, their secrets. You should listen to the whole episode, the whole interview, because it's very like Vincendo is so charming. Yes. Dave's a great interviewer. Like it's a great episode of of podcast. But I do want to say that like Vincendo, like he said, I don't know, but he also said like they keep. He was basically saying they keep everyone in the dark. Like I'm now, I'm curious like what the actors even know. To be honest, but, with but you, so. okay. But as you pointed out to me, Joanna, that is kind of messed up if. Even the director doesn't know because if Dolores's arcs are taking place in two separate timelines, like how you know how can you you, you need you need to know some things to know how to direct actors or to you know if you're an actor to know how to behave right like you you need to kind of know I feel like uh, whether this is taking place at different times or not I don't know uh, I, I don't mean, with, I don't have with, definitive like I don't have a, a good <laughs> argument against that it's just a gut feeling that. If a director doesn't know, then how can they possibly make this into like a through line that is satisfying? You know? I'm less I'm less inclined to get sort of fussed about Dolores since she's like if she's a robot who's resetting, then like you know, uh, yeah, you're you're probably right. But I but I am more. I don't know. I don't want to say upset, but I am more interested. Like, oh, let's say let's say Jeffrey Wright is secretly an android like bernard is an android should the should the director know that if the man in black's history is the william story shouldn't the director know that that's what ed harris should be playing you know like that's really interesting to me so i guess i I guess they don't have to know that they don't technically have to know that right you could just say the man in black's like this and william is like this Here's William's motivation. Here's the man in black motivation. Go. You know, like, yeah. that's all you need, but it feels wrong to me. feels wrong. That's all I'd say. But yeah. listen to that whole interview. There's a lot of awesome tidbits with Vincenzo in there. So uh, find that episode and many others at decodingwestworld.com. Uh, and we'll see you guys next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? 
They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.